Right, so we're going to read from chapter 16, starting at verse 13 and to verse 28. God's word. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Thanks very much, Terry. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Father in heaven, as we come before your word this morning, we thank you for that reminder, Lord, that gospel truths are not revealed to us by flesh and blood, but by you, but by our loving Father in heaven. 
And so please this morning give us such clarity as we think again about the person of Jesus, all that he's come to do, and why it matters so much to us. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. I want to begin this morning by reading to you uh, a poem of unknown authorship. It's a poem that's been written into the conflict of, of war. It's written by a loved one who's lost a loved one. And this is how the poem goes. You never said I'm leaving. You never said goodbye. You were gone before I knew it. And only God knew why. A million times I needed you. A million times I cried. If love alone could have saved you, you never would have died. In life, I loved you dearly. In death, I loved you still. In my heart, you hold a place that no one could ever fill. It broke my heart to lose you, but you didn't go alone. For part of me went with you the day God took you home. It's one of many poems and sentiments expressing the deep loss and pain and hurt that is experienced because of war. And it's hard, isn't it, to, to read something like that. It's hard to, to hear something like that and remember, as we're called to today, the countless loss of life. That emotion experienced on such an incomprehensible scale. It's hard to hear and it's hard to remember without being forced to ask some pretty significant questions of life. Why? Why so much death? Why so much pain? Why so much hurt? Could things have not been different? Where was God while all this was going on? Some very real questions that are provoked by the presence of war and conflict in this world. But could I say to you this morning that there is an even bigger question, the definitive question, as I've called it this morning. Until we understand this question, until we've got an answer to this question, then we'll never make sense fully of all these other very real and legitimate questions in life. And it's a question that Jesus asks concerning his own identity in Matthew chapter 16. Let me read to you again verse 13 through to 15. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? You see, Jesus begins by asking the questions of the masses as he speaks to his disciples. What are the people out there saying? What do they make of Jesus? What's the general vibe about Jesus? What about the boys down the pub? What about the mums at the school gate? What about the little boys and girls gathered in the playground? What do they make of the person of Jesus? And now the answers that you might get today to that question may differ to what came back in Jesus' day, but this they will all have in common. There will be a range of opinion concerning the identity of Jesus Christ. 
Have a look at the answers that came back in Jesus' day. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. You see, now, those answers that come back in verse 14, they're neither unflattering nor unreasonable. They're positive responses. Jesus was one of the good guys. He taught some good stuff. He did some good things. But can you see, human categories are not enough for Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't just another in a long line of prophets. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's not someone that just left a nice imprint on this world 2,000 years ago. You cannot put Jesus in a box and describe him in human categories. He is so way above and beyond, supreme above all other people. He is the divine son. He's God himself. And you may remember last week that that Jesus warned the disciples against any teaching that might prevent people from seeing who he was. Do you remember that in chapter 16, verse 6 and verse 11? Be careful, Jesus said. Be on your guard against the yeast or the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Be careful of any teaching that clouds the issue when it comes to the identity of Jesus. Why such a strong warning? Because the identity of Jesus is of such supreme importance. It is the definitive question which we must all ask ourselves. And that's why Jesus gets personal look in verse 15. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? You can imagine the flow of conversation, can't you? As Jesus' disciples head to Caesarea Philippi, maybe through a field of corn, and they're just letting their hands breeze across the top of the corn. And he throws out almost an idle question. What do the people out there say? And all the answers come back. And then Jesus stops. And they stop. And he looks at them and says, What about you? What about you, Simon Peter? Andrew, James, Thaddeus, Thomas, what about you? I'm not talking about the people now out there. I'm not talking about your neighbour or your mum or your dad or the person you're sat next to. Right now, Jesus looked them in the eye, you can imagine, with a piercing gaze. He looked into their soul and said, what about you? Who do you say I am? It's a question that we all need to answer. And you see Peter's response in verse 16 on behalf of the disciples. What a beautiful response it is. Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, Peter gets some pretty bad press at times in the Bible with his threefold denial of Jesus and his generally rash, impetuous behavior. But here we see his heart of faith. Here is a man who recognizes, who accepts, and who declares Jesus to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And remember, Peter didn't have the privilege of what we do, of looking back through Bible history at the cross and the resurrection, just a slice he had. He had enough. 
to declare Jesus to be the Son of the living God. It is a great confession of faith, and it is followed by a great commendation of faith by Jesus in verse 17. Look what Jesus replies, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Peter's declaration, his confession of faith, was a result of divine revelation. Can you see that? This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Peter's recognition of Jesus was no human achievement. Jesus didn't say to Peter, oh, cool, well done, Peter, what a fine, intelligent young man you are. How incredibly well thought through you are, Peter. Well done, my friend. What did he say? He said, blessed, blessed are you. Why? Because of what God has done in your heart. You see that moment of divine revelation when God shines his light into people's hearts to help them see the glory of God in the face of Christ is the single most significant event that can ever happen to any human being anywhere ever. And so I must ask you, I'm forced to ask you almost as we read this, has it happened to you? Has that moment of awakening happened? The veil being removed from your eyes? Can you declare this morning with Peter that Jesus is the Messiah? He's my Messiah. He's my King. He's my Saviour. And he's the Son of of the living God because if you can then you are blessed indeed immeasurably blessed beyond measure because of God's magnificent work in your hearts firstly then we have the identity of Jesus as the divine son but secondly we have the mission of Jesus as the dying saviour the one who builds his church through his sin-bearing, sacrificial, life-giving work at the cross. Look how he continues in verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, there's a lot of ink that has been spilt on those two verses, primarily because they're not read in the context of what follows the next four verses. So let me read to you from verse 20 to 23 as we try to understand verse 18 and 19. Jesus goes on. He ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. 
You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Do you see the contrast there on the screen between verse 18 and verse 23? It's a stark contrast, isn't it? One moment Peter is described as the rock upon which Jesus will build his church and the next moment he's a very different sort of stone altogether, a stumbling block, in fact, to the saving work of Jesus from a rock to a stumbling block in just five verses. You see, the focus isn't on Peter per se. The focus is on the gospel that has been revealed from heaven to Peter. It is the gospel upon which Jesus will build his church. The good news of who Jesus is, the divine son, and what he came to do as our dying saviour. It is the momentous gospel upon which Jesus Christ will build his church. And so you see, with a gospel confession on his lips in verse 16, Peter's like a rock. But with a gospel denial on his lips in verse 22, Peter is a stumbling block to the cause of Christ. And Jesus reserves his sharpest rebuke in all of Scripture for his dearest friend, who at this particular moment was a stumbling block to all that Jesus came to do. Verse 23, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but simply human concerns. But you see, there was no other way for Jesus. Peter wanted another way, but there was no other way. Verse 21, can you see the emphasis there? From this time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. There was no other way for Jesus to build his church. There was no other way for Jesus to redeem and reconcile wayward people to himself. He had to go to the cross to deal with sin. But Peter didn't want to listen. He didn't want to listen. He wanted there to be another way. He didn't want a suffering saviour. He wanted a royal ruler. And so in that remarkable scene in verse 22, he actually rebukes the Son of God. He takes Jesus to one side and he reprimands him for his single-minded devotion and commitment to the cross. Never, Lord, says Peter, this shall never happen to you. But it had to happen because Jesus has just said it must. And praise God that Jesus' must is stronger than Peter's never. Jesus is sovereign. He will complete his mission. He did go to the cross and he will build his church. When Jesus says must, it means must. It did happen for us. And that's the first of three encouragements that follow. Look in verse 18 and 19. On this rock, I will build my church. Yes, Jesus uses gospel confessors, just like Peter. And just like us, 
Jesus will build his church today through the faithful, prayerful proclamation of the gospel. But let's not forget, it's not our church. This is Jesus' church, and he will build it. He alone will build it. And that should be of great comfort and encouragement to us today in a world of mess, that the Lord Jesus Christ must... He is committed to building his church and he will complete his mission. And then the second encouragement in verse 18, Jesus will triumph. Do you see that? The gates of Hades will not overcome it, literally will not prove stronger. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus is liberating men and women every single day from the clutches of eternal death and the gates of Hades, the realm of the dead, can do nothing about it. They will not stand in the advance of the gospel. Jesus will build his church. Jesus will triumph. The gospel will prevail. And thirdly, access to the kingdom of heaven comes by faith. And that's what the keys speak of there in verse 19. They're a symbol of authority and they're a symbol of access. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind or forbid on earth will be bound or forbidden in heaven. And whatever you loose or allow on earth will be loosed or allowed in heaven. You see, it's our job to invite people to enter eternity by telling them about Jesus and that will bind some and it will loose others. Those without faith will be bound or forbidden access to the kingdom of heaven. But those with faith will be loosed, allowed, liberated access to the kingdom of heaven. As the old song goes, only by grace can we enter only by grace can we stand not by our human endeavor but by the blood of the lamb you see we enter by trusting in the person and work of jesus his identity as the divine son and his mission as the dying savior who rose again to new life ascended to glory and caused us to follow him through death to life, which brings us to our third and final point, the call of Jesus to deny self. Identity, divine son, mission, dying saviour, call to deny self. Verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Jesus calls us to a life of self-denial and sacrifice, which is a concept I think we understand in the context of today. As you flick back to those images that you saw on the screen, countless people who denied self much and made huge sacrifices for the sake of others. You see, when we come to the death of Jesus, it not only saves us, which is its primary function to bring salvation, but it also sets us a pattern or an example to follow as we follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus who denied self and sacrificed self 
for the sake of others. As Martin Luther said, the cross we bear precedes the crown we wear. It's cross, then crown. It's pain, then paradise. It's hardship, then heaven. For Jesus, it was Gethsemane and then glory. And the pattern for us will be the same if we choose to follow Jesus faithfully in this life. You see, self-preservation and comfort are not the way of the cross. Can I say that again? Self-preservation and comfort are not the way of the cross. I think that's probably pretty hard to hear this morning because I think in our Western context, one of our great idols is that of comfort. We love comfort. We want comfort. It's one of the great idols of our age. And so when we hear that the way of the cross is not the way of self-preservation and comfort, it cuts a little bit, doesn't it? I don't know how many of you have ever asked the question. It's a, it's a question I ask myself a lot. Why, why don't I tell more people about Jesus? Why am I not braver with the gospel, the life-changing gospel in my hands? Why do I not hold more brothers and sisters to account and urge them and challenge them in areas of godliness in their life? Why do I not bring the gospel to bear on all people, those outside the kingdom and those in? Do you know what I think the answer is? I think one of the answers is because it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable to do it. And we don't like to be uncomfortable because comfort is one of the great idols of the human heart. So instead, we often withdraw and take the easy option. I don't know whether anyone's read this book called The Plausibility Problem. It's a book that's written by Ed Shaw, who is uh, a pastor of a church in Bristol. And he writes the book as one who is is struggling with same-sex attraction. And he writes uh, one of his chapters on this whole chapter on self-denial and sacrifice. And he says for him, this is what obedience to Jesus looks like for him. This is what it looks like for him to pick up his cross and deny Jesus. It means not following through those broken desires in his heart for the sake of obedience to his saviour. And he goes on to talk about these kitchen floor moments where he's he's crumpled in a heap on the kitchen floor because it hurts him, it's hard to deny self. There's a cost and it's painful. But he says this is what a disciple of Christ is called to. Deny self and pick up your cross. Total obedience to our Saviour. Whatever the cost for self. And Jesus pushes that principle home, doesn't he, in verse 25. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life, for me, will find it. You may be familiar with uh, the little quote there on the screen. Jim Elliot, who, who died, was martyred as a missionary in Ecuador back in 1948, was speaking on that particular verse, and he said, He is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You are no fool. If you give away, surrender what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose, which is life forever with Christ. And Jesus then goes on to pose two questions, doesn't he? 
to push home further the folly almost of clinging on to worldly possessions and things. Do you see those two questions in verse 26? What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Answer, no good. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Answer, nothing. On the back of the 9-11 atrocities in New York in, back in 2001, while the towers were still standing after the two planes had flown into them, the brave firemen of New York went in to evacuate as many survivors as possible. And one of them tells the story of going into the Twin Towers and they're literally shaking with the impact of the planes. And to his utter astonishment, he went into one of the offices as they're clearing out the people, only to find one of the workers still working away at his desk, tapping away his computer, trying to close a financial deal. And the sad end to the story is that that man never made it home to see his wife and his children that night. He was clinging on so tightly to the things of this world, totally oblivious to the bigger picture of what was going on around. The towers were about to come down, and so many people in this world, it's like they're oblivious to the bigger picture of who Christ is, what he's done. He's coming back. And people are clinging ever so tightly to so many worldly things that they're almost oblivious to this bigger picture of what will really count in eternity. What good is it, says Jesus? What good to gain everything now, the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? No good whatsoever. And then he pushes that point home with his second question, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? On that day, when we stand before our maker, and eternity in some shape or form is beckoning, what can we give to God then in exchange for our soul? Answer, nothing. No amount of money. No amount of trophies or accolades or achievements. No amount of good works can secure your soul for eternity. Only faith. Only faith in Jesus Christ can do that. And so on today of all days, when we're confronted with the frailty of human life, the fleeting nature of our earthly existence as for mankind. His days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field and the wind blows over it and it's gone and its place remembers it no more. In that context, as we remember today, praise God, Praise God that he has given us a resounding answer to the definitive question concerning the identity of Jesus. He is the divine son. And he left heaven to walk in this world clothed in mortality, to be our dying saviour. That was his mission. And he rose again to new life, conquering the grave, to forever liberate 
us from the bondage of decay and the brokenness of this world and take us safely through death to life and to glory. As Jesus finishes by saying in verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Jesus is coming back and he's coming back in glory and he's going to make all things new. All things perfectly restored for all eternity. Only when we set our gaze beyond this world will we be able to make sense of what is happening in this world. Only when we look to eternity and remind ourselves what Christ has bought and purchased for us will we be able to make sense of the mess of the present and the now. Which is why there is no more important question for you to ever ask in life than the one that we find here in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. But what about you? Jesus searches your heart and your soul this morning and he asks you that question. What about you? Who do you say I am? Why don't you take a moment to reflect on that question and the implications of it for you before we come to the Lord's table.